Hello, friends. Patrick McFarlane here of the Liberty Weekly Podcast coming at you with another episode. This one is episode 170. And on the line, I have James Corbett, who should be familiar with my audience. So uh, welcome back to the show. James is an independent researcher and documentarian specializing in open source intelligence and geopolitics. He's the man behind the Corbett Report at CorbettReport.com, which he runs with uh, video producer extraordinaire Brock West. How's it going, James? Not too bad. Thanks for having me on. Really glad to have you back on the show. And uh, I wanted to bring you on specifically to talk about China because China's been in the news lately. Uh, China's been a lot of what I've been doing in my own work at the Libertarian Institute. And every interview that I've heard you talk about China recently, you refer to your episode, uh, China in the New World Order. And it's been a hot minute since you released that. So I, I thought we could revisit that. Yes. In fact, in preparation for our conversation today, I, I re-listened to that episode in its entirety for the first time in a number of years. And I realized, you know, as much as I plug that podcast, I don't plug it enough. It was a hell of a podcast. And in fact, if uh, you wanted to introduce someone to my work, that would probably be a good place to start. There's so much information in there. I'd almost forgotten how jam-packed that podcast was. So I made a handy-dandy link for people. Because as much as we're going to talk today, we can only skim the surface of this. But if people want all of the documentation and evidence, go to CorbettReport.com slash China. And you will get straight to that podcast episode. The complete transcript is there, the audio, the video, everything. So um, I hope people will make use of it as a resource. Yeah, definitely. And I'll, I'll put that in the show notes there. Everyone can find that. But so what, what, what was your thesis in that episode? I suppose, long story short, the thesis was that we are experiencing the propaganda uh, that is coming from the two-dimensional chess game that is taking place, but broadly speaking, between the U.S. and its allies in the West versus China, the enemy, and its allies in the resistance bloc, however that's formulated, Russia, Iran, whatever countries you want to lump in there. Uh, whereas, in reality, there is a 3D chess game that is being played that involves elements of both sides of that supposed conflict uh, cooperating with each other in various ways and understandings. And uh, there's a lot to explore with that thesis. It has a lot of different things. And I think there is a two-dimensional conflict that is taking place. And a lot of people are genuinely working towards what they believe their own nation-state interests or their regional interests or whatever it is. But I think at the top, there is a group that we are not allowed to look at or else we will be deemed conspiracy theorists that are demonstrably and documentably and on the record working with the Chinese to build up the Chinese dragon uh, that did not just spring out of the soil a couple of decades ago. Miraculously, it was carefully and purposefully laid. The foundations for what has become this Chinese juggernaut were laid over the course of the past four decades, and that is documentable. So I, I guess that's as good of any as a place to start. So where does this story really begin? I suppose, it, like every story, how far back do you want to go and where do you want to situate it? But I guess the easiest way to get a grip on this narrative would be to start looking at the opening up of China in the 70s, the reestablishment of diplomatic ties between the U.S. and China. Of course, Nixon went to China in 72 and had the famous meeting and they renormalized diplomatic relations and so in that narrative, broadly speaking, there you go, you get the sort of renormalization of diplomatic um, ties between the U.S. and China, then you get the death of Mao, and you get Deng Xiaoping taking over, and you get the sort of the market reforms of the Chinese economy, and bada-bing, bada-boom, somehow or other, suddenly China is this economic juggernaut. Um, the the somehow or other is the important part of this story, and I locate that um, by pointing out it wasn't that Nixon went spontaneously to China in 72, you know, sight unseen, no preparation at all. No, 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 no. He was preceded the year before his visit in a secret trip that was later uh, revealed to the public of Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger, of course, was essentially the emissary who preceded Nixon to China and opened up the, uh, the dialogue. And how did he do that? And who was he working for? Well, it is no great secret. Uh, Nixon was a Rockefeller protege. He was working for Rockefeller, David Rockefeller. And the Rockefeller family, for people in your audience who don't know, I would suggest they check out my work on the Rockefellers. I've done quite a lot of it over the years. Um, but yes, the Rockefeller family has been heavily interested in and invested in China 
for at least the last century, um, even more than that, really. But they, they have their fingers in the Chinese pie, as even they talk about. I quote, for example, in that China and the New World Order episode, I quote Richard Rockefeller of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, saying, you know, our family has, has been there for generations, so it seems a little less foreign to us. Yes, of course, they have been there. And so there are some other surprising connections um, that go into the pre-opening up time period that I point out in that podcast. For example, did you know about Yale in China? Yes, essentially Yale had a Chinese outpost in the early part of the 20th century, Yale in China. And as even Yale itself brags about in an edition of the Yale Daily News that I cite in that episode back in uh, February of 1972, they had an article, Yale Group Spurs Mao's Emergence which says that uh, in the class of 1919, in addition to the 1,000 male leaders graduating in New Haven, Yale in China was helping a young man by the name of Mao Zedong. And they go on to quote uh, Jonathan Spence, who was a professor of Chinese history at the time, saying um, that uh, essentially the rise of Mao Zedong may have never happened were it not for Yale. Um, Because Yale in China for some reason or other, picked this young Mao Zedong, who at the time was essentially a nobody, to become the editor, to take over the editorship of their journal. And he explicitly, and again, according to Yale Daily News, Mao accepted the position and changed the format of the student magazine. It would now deal with social criticism and current problems and focus on thought reorientation, (laughs) a.k.a. brainwashing, yes. I mean, openly, all of this is, I mean, this is Yale Daily News. It's not conspiracy theorist James Corbett talking about this. So there are deep connections. And that Yale connection is actually even more significant when you put it in the context of Yale, Skull and Bones. And when you look at after the opening of uh, China for at least the the few decades um, between the opening of China and the time when I made that podcast seven years ago, I think every single one except except one of the of the ambassadors to China or diplomatic uh, emissaries to China had been uh, skull and bonesmen. So uh, there is there is definitely some deep connections there. But I think the real story. I mean, if you really want to sink your teeth in, it is the opening up. It is the capitalist rotors of the late 1970s, the Deng Xiaoping era, and the connections that were formed at that time, again, explicitly with the Rockefellers and others, um, to create the financial infrastructure and the technology transfer infrastructure for what became a huge influx in R&D and development funding in the 90s that became the 2000s economic rise of China. And so before we dive into, you know, that that opening up and kind of the flowering of that situation is I understand that uh, Anthony Sutton's done a lot of work on this as well. What what does he really uncover? Now, Sutton is extremely important. I have to give absolute full credit to Sutton because it was Sutton's work on uh, detailing uh, Wall Street and the rise of Hitler, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution and Wall Street and FDR that really helped me to understand and to see what was happening with China. So I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here, which is why I can see as far as I can. And I always fear that I run the risk in simply, in this sort of conversational format or in the the podcasts that I put out, for the people who are just accepting this kind of as infotainment and letting it wash over them, they may think that I am citing Antony Sudden. Well, Sudden said this, And therefore, we should believe it. But no, I mean, I cannot stress enough how much you need to actually read his writing to understand how well-sourced and well-documented what he was doing was. He was a genuine, real-deal academic researcher who did write academic publications in the 1970s about this. The Soviet uh, Western Western Technology Transfer in the Soviet Union, I believe, was the title of a a three-part series that he wrote, an academic... Um, uh, series that he wrote for the academic community. I will confess I haven't read it. It is available on archive.org, but even Brzezinski cites that. But he did then go on after essentially being excommunicated from uh, academia for daring to broach this subject. He went on to write trade paperbacks for the general public, which I I often cite, and once again, because they are so important. Uh, Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. It's the kind of research that you 
I mean, it, it's incredible. He really goes through actual document archives and uncovers the, the, the sort of real story. And I guess the meat and potatoes of this, once you start to go through this and see the documented connections time and time again, all these Wall Street, New York financiers and bankers, time and time again, directly funding, uh, even going to Russia and helping out essentially the Bolsheviks during the revolution. Why? Why on earth are they doing this? And he addresses that specifically and I think frames it in a way that um, that helps us to understand what the real story is and why they're doing this. Um, for example, in uh, uh, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, he writes about uh, the explanation for the unholy alliance, as he says. He, uh, what, motive, what motive explains the coalition of capitalists and Bolsheviks? Um, why allow Russia to become a competitor and a challenge to U.S. supremacy? In the late, late 19th century, Morgan, Rockefeller, and Guggenheim had demonstrated their monopolistic proclivities. In Railroads and Regulation, 1877 to 1916, Gabriel Kolko has demonstrated how the railroad owners, not the farmers, wanted state control of railroads in order to preserve their monopoly and abolish competition. So the simplest explanation of our evidence is that a syndicate of Wall Street financiers enlarged their monopoly ambitions and broadened horizons on a global scale. The gigantic Russian market was to be converted into a captive market and a technical colony to be exploited by a few high-powered American financiers and the corporations under their control. What the Interstate Commerce Commission and the Federal Trade Commission under the thumb of American industry could achieve for that industry at home, a planned socialist government could achieve for it abroad, given suitable support and inducements from Wall Street and Washington, D.C. It's essentially part of a monopolization enterprise. And what better way to monopolize than to put things under socialist control? It's for the people, everyone. The people owns this, by which we mean the state. The state controls it all. And who's funding, financing, and making this state possible? Never, ever ask that question. That's conspiracy theory, and we're not allowed to talk about that, right? So that's a compelling part of this argument, and essentially what I went on to, to detail in uh, in slightly more detail uh, in a report that I released in 2015 called Deal with the Devil, how the global elite recolonized China, putting it in that perspective. Essentially, here's the recolonization of China under the auspices of this socialist Chinese Communist Party that was essentially making deals, shall we say, literally documentable deals with uh, the, the American and Western financiers and bankers. And so that's one way of understanding this. Um, essentially, it's, an, it's a monopolization enterprise. But I also appreciate what um, Sudden says in, uh, as I quote him, in China and the New World Order. And um, you're going to forgive me, I'll have to, uh, I'm going to have to find that quote. Oh, okay. Uh, the interviewer who's talking to Anthony Sutton in this clip says, uh, just tell us all over again why. I.e., why, why are they doing this? And he says, why? You won't find this in the textbooks. Why is to bring about, I suspect, a plan to control world society in which you and I won't find the freedoms to believe and think and do as we believe. So, in other words, yes, there, there's clearly a sort of a profit motive and a desire for monopolistic control over various industries and essentially recolonizing areas of the globe under the, 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 the sort of secret deals and what have you. But at the end of the day, it's about control over the planet itself. And I think that's, that's ultimately what unites seemingly disparate factions from China, from Russia, from the US, from every other country. The, there, are, there is a certain clique at the top of these various power structures that all agree we need to completely control our citizens, our cattle, and be able to control everything they are doing, surveil everything that they're doing, uh, control their transactions and interactions on a daily basis. Of course, that's what we want. The only question is who's going to be at the top of that ultimate power structure. And I think that's the quibbling that does go on. But that's, that's the why. That's why this is being done. And as I say, I keep going back to this because Sudden has laid it out in so much detail in the past. And in fact, a point that I'd forgotten, actually, until I went back and re-listened to um, this this podcast is that Sutton, uh, in 1984, wrote uh, America's Secret Establishment, in which he said, by about the year 2000, communist China will be a superpower built by American technology and skill. Well, he might have missed it by a decade or two, but here we are. So uh, hats off to Sutton for, for seeing this as it was developing. 
Yeah. And wow. I mean, that's, that's prophetic. And one, one thing that I kind of got into is, you know, I'm, I'm learning about this, some of it for the first time and trying to wrap my head around it and figure out exactly like, okay, if, if, if there is an ultimate agenda for China and Russia, like during the cold war, if, if Russia, the Soviets and Bolsheviks were financed by the West, if there is an ultimate agenda, then why is it that war doesn't then, then should we not be afraid of war breaking out? I guess is what I'm trying to say because, and I think there's a lot of danger where it's like, Oh, well, world war three could never break out whether it's over Ukraine or whether it's over the South China sea and Taiwan, because it would quickly go nuclear and and because of that larger agenda, people think, oh, well, we you know, no one wants to press that button. So what what I posit then is basically that, well, there's all these potential for human mistakes and accidents. And maybe that war is part of the larger agenda. Uh, that's one thing I wanted to ask your opinion on. Yes. Um, let me put it this way. First of all, I don't think there is a single entity or group that controls the entire world and everything that happens in it. I don't think that's the way this type of conspiracy functions. So. Um, whether is there is a singular agenda that that is being played out and will be adhered to strictly um, or not, I will leave your listeners to decide for themselves. I don't think that sounds realistic myself, and I don't see the evidence for that. But that there are general tendencies, certainly. And in that, I think there is clearly there's contingency planning. If this happens, how do we use that to our advantage? If that happens, how do we use that to our advantage? Of course, so that there are any number of possibilities that could play out, all of which could be used to serve the interests of people who are themselves in positions of power with money and influence to essentially direct the response to these various events. In that context, I am not one of these people with the normalcy bias who says, you know, oh, World War III could never happen. No, 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 of course. An actual hot war absolutely could happen. And and that's that's precisely right, of course. Uh, nuclear weapons and everything else, uh, uh, things that we don't even know about yet at our level of the power pyramid, um, would be undoubtedly unleashed in the event of a truly global conflict. And it would be absolutely horrific. And it would look like absolutely no other war we've ever seen before exactly as World War I was absolutely mind-blowingly horrific um, to the people who were living through that. They could not have imagined anything like that prior to World War I. Uh, similarly with World War II, again, it was just, it, it blew people's minds. They could not believe what was happening. They couldn't understand it. They could hardly process it. And I think, again, it doesn't necessarily have to be part of a reg regimented plan that is being strictly adhered to with a timetable, but at any rate, that is precisely something that can and presumably would be used by whatever power structure exists for its own advantage in the wake of that kind of a cataclysmic, the end of the world as we've known it event. Precisely as in World War I, the League of Nations, and we're going to reconstitute the world order. We're going to try this new international system. Um, and that didn't quite work. It couldn't quite sell it hard enough to the American public to get on board with it. So, uh, of course, that breaks down, doesn't quite work. World War II, here's a new chance. United Nations, of course, is the response. Now we need this new international organization. What international organization will be proposed in the wake of World War III? And Again, we don't have to speculate about how this was consciously, these events were consciously used for precisely that, for softening the public towards these global institutions. Prior to World War I, you had um, the, the Reese Committee in the 1950s that was ex uh, examining the records of the tax-exempt tax foundations, um, examining the meeting minutes of the Carnegie Foundation from its inception, moving forward from there, look, uh, reading the through the minutes in which you had the people sitting on the board of the Carnegie Foundation from its inception talking about, well, how best can we steer uh, the, the uh, American public in a given direction? And after what um, the researcher, uh, Norman Dodd, described as uh, high-level scholarly conversations along those lines, they eventually decided after about a year of conversation that there is no better way than to uh, than war in order to bring about a change in public consciousness. So then the conversation turned to how can we steer the American, uh, United States of America into war, which you would imagine in, you know, 1910-ish, very few Americans were probably thinking about that. How can we get involved in a war? Yeah, no, of course not. But 
lo and behold, World War One comes along, and after a few years of propaganda and machinations that I go through in my World War One conspiracy documentary, they managed to accomplish exactly that, to get America into war, which completely, in a way that's difficult for us to understand on the other side of that divide, completely changed the American public's perception of the United States, of the government, of its role in public life, in its duties and responsibilities abroad, uh, it really was a fundamental breaking point, which was exactly the point. Uh, World War II, you can look at the uh, the formation of a Council on Foreign Relations directed working group that was in 19, I believe in 1942, uh, already looking at the post-war period and starting to construct what became the United Nations. It it, it the, the idea for that emerged from a working group that the Council on Foreign Relations was leading in the early 1940s, before the war was even over. They were already planning for how they were going to construct the next part of the global establishment. So, yes, World War III, it, if and when a hot war eventuates, it will, of course, be used for precisely the same purposes. And one can imagine that those conversations are already taking place in various forms, under various guises, both open and public and behind closed doors. Um, and uh, the, I suppose the other aspect of this, and one that I want to point out as well, I did a, a specifically a Questions for Corbett addressing this last year, where I talked about World War III, how will World War III be fought? And I, I addressed all of that. But I also addressed the fact that, really, I think we need to reconceptualize what World War III is. Because, yes, of course, whatever kind of geopolitical nation-states-at-war kind of idea we have about warfare, I think the real war the war that actually matters is the war on us, all of us, by our own governments, by people in these foundations, in multinational corporations, all of these various seats of power working against us, specifically to control us, to track us, to surveil us, to make sure that the human element cannot rise up to spoil their perfect monopolistic enterprise. And until we wrap our heads around that concept, I don't think we can even enter the playing field of this 3D chess game. Yeah, definitely. And I want to get to, to that to see if how, you know, how that fits into the narrative with China. Um, but I, I'm glad that you pointed out the, this concept of there not being a unified agenda because, you know, loose phrasing on my part. But at the same time, I think it's something that people get caught up in, you know, myself included. Um, you, you, I just wanted to touch on a few things you said because I've been reading Shadows of Power by uh, James Perloff as well. You know, talking about the Dawes Plan and the CFR's influence in the in the interwar period, and so that's been really interesting. But I wanted to see if you um, had seen this, James. Uh, 2034, a novel of the next world war, written by one of the former Allied Supreme Commanders of NATO. And in it, he he predicts a world war occurring with China in 2034, of course, occurring in the South China Sea. And it quickly goes to a tactical nuclear missile being launched from the U.S. Uh, to mainland China, killing 10 million people. So that's that's the point I'm at in the book right now, James. <laughs> Is that in Shadows of Power? Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. That That's a novel written by oh, okay. Admiral James... Um, it's hard to pronounce his name. He was, I think he was two Supreme Commanders of NATO ago. Uh-huh. Okay. And so how old is this book? Uh, it came out this year. It came out oh. in March. Oh, okay. No, I definitely haven't heard about this. No, that's that's fascinating. I'm definitely going to have to read that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'll, um, I, I might, I, I think I'm going to do a write-up about it. But, um, so, so anyways, I know another thing, and I, I kind of, I was trying, I waffled on this on whether, what to ask you about. We were going to talk about China, but at the same time, a very important thing that you've been talking about is this, uh, the convergence, I think you called it in your last episode. Um, and, and so do you see, how does that fit in with, with China and what's going on? Uh, there is absolutely a convergence, if you will, of, uh, of these uh, ideologies. I, I, I think, as I say, at base, it is the same ideology in every power structure, the pathological the pathocrats get into the positions of power whereby they can control as many people as possible, and their goal is to control as many people as possible. One that you, that is a goal that neither you nor I nor probably anyone listening to your podcast can really relate to. It is not my, I don't wake up in the morning thinking, how can I can expand my power over other people? That's just not my mindset. But we suffer from the lack of imagination understanding there are people 
who genuinely do lust after that kind of power and genuinely spend their entire lives working toward it, how do you explain the people like the Rockefellers and the Kissingers and the Brzezinski's working tirelessly into their 90s, just never stopping on their quest to consolidate as much power as possible? That is not a normal human motivation. That is not what normal human beings do. So make of that what you will. Um, but, of course, those elements also pertain in Chinese society, Russian society, everywhere else. And in that regard, we see, of course, the Chinese government is the example that is constantly being touted of for the ultimate surveillance state. And I've pointed this out many times, but I want people to consciously note it when they see the Western propaganda about China. It is always this horrible, oppressive Chinese state. Look at this horrible technology and social credit and everything. But wouldn't it be nice if we could do a little bit of that? There's always that soaked in there. Um, and that's that's because, of course, China is the model, as explicitly touted by Rockefeller in his 1972, three, ode to Mao, um, uh, from a China traveler that was published in the New York Times, saying what a wonderful experiment the uh, China's so, uh, cultural revolution had been. The one that, oh yeah, by the way, resulted in tens of millions of people starving to death. What a wonderful experiment, as Rockefeller called it, because they share the same ideology. So you better believe China is also working on the same convergence technologies that the World Economic Forum and its cronies are touting. Now, again, there's, there is a 2D element to this. Yes, clearly the Chinese companies aren't at the heart of the World Economic Forum and the World Economic Forum led Great Reset. There are some some crossovers, but most no most of the partner found of uh, corporations of the World Economic Forum, generally speaking, most of them are Western companies, and the Chinese corporate infrastructure for this is a separate infrastructure. But they are working towards the same goals, and China has set various targets uh, for their vision of 2030, of 2040, um, of of essentially trying to conquer um, the AI space and the emerging technologies surrounding that. Because, as Putin pointed out several years ago, the country that masters or at least first um, comes up with the best, shall we say, AI, will rule the world. Um, because there's no going back once you've, once you've come up with the best autonomous drone weapon bots that can be set to go and kill people willy-nilly, whatever the case may be. And I think there is, there is something to that. Unfortunately, just the vocabulary surrounding this topic, people always ceasing, ceaselessly get hung up on artificial intelligence. This isn't intelligence. The, the stopping problem, I tell you, toasters don't have a soul. That is not the point. Autonomous weapons already exist that you punch a button and it will go and find its preformed target and kill it by itself. No humans involved in the loop. That is, I, I don't know what your, I mean, it's the equivalent of putting your fingers in your ears. Nah, 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 can't get me. It doesn't exist. No, these technologies are already being worked on. And yes, they don't have a soul and they're not thinking in the human way or anything like that. But these technologies are coming online and they're being worked on by Russians, by Chinese, by Americans, by everyone else simultaneously. This is a calamity that is unfolding right now. And uh, as much as I would love to be one of these people who have swallowed the CCP propaganda that... Oh, they're the good guys that are fighting back against the NATO. Blah, blah, blah. I've talked against that as many times as I can, because unfortunately that is a trap that a lot of the quasi-independent media falls into, because I think, unfortunately, a lot of the quasi-independent media actually finds fundings through um, Chinese and Russian state influence. Uh, I think there's a lot of that that goes on. So um, the people who are genuinely independent, preserve your independence don't go writing for any Chinese or Russian state-owned institution because they let you talk the truth about America. No, they're doing that precisely so you won't talk the truth about China and Russia and other sides of this equation. And we have to understand, once again, it's a, it's a war of them, the they-them-those of conspiracy lore against us. And we, Chinese, Americans, Canadians, Japanese, Australians, we, we are in it together. Um, and... Although they try to use that in their propaganda as the kind of, we're in it together. They mean you're in it together. You're in the, the barrel and we've got the gun. So I think we have to understand that's the position we're in right now. Yeah, and that's been a really hard tightrope to to walk. Like, especially for me, I've been doing this work on the, the so-called Uyghur genocide. And um, it, it's been hard to, at the same time, say, well, okay, yes, there are camps in, in Xinjiang region 
They are for rehabilitation and fighting terrorism. But no, it's not a genocide. And these camps are awful. And, you know, they shouldn't exist. But at the same time, people aren't having their organs harvested. They're not being subjected to, you know, mass gang rape. Um, they're not being involuntarily sterilized. And it, it's just, it's a very difficult road to walk. Yeah, no, it, it, it absolutely is. And I think that is by design. Yes, of course. I mean, first of all, as human beings, we tend to operate in binaries. Yes, no, black, white, good, bad, and choose a side. And if they're the bad ones, then they must be the good ones. That is the way we are generally wired to approach most situations, unless we interrupt that programming and say, no, we do not have to fall into that binary. And you're exactly right. There is obvious, over-the-top, and, and documentable propaganda going on with regard, for example, to the Uyghur issue that suddenly all of these various outlets are so interested in because they love the Uyghurs and they care so much about the Uyghurs and they didn't know how to spell Uyghur three weeks ago, but now they really care what is going on there. Of course, it is propaganda-led and propaganda-directed for the express and specific purpose of getting a sort of propaganda wedge in the door so that they can have an in for, if not active military combat, maybe that, but at any rate, destabilization campaigns. Well, we got to go in there and disrupt what's going on to save the Uyghurs. And yes, it is hard not to fall into all of the different traps there. Because obviously, yes, once you start to see the obvious propagandistic value of this, you know, save the Uyghurs kind of thing that's being touted. And uh, I think you pointed out um, recently an, an excellent uh, gray zone investigation into the Uyghur genocide. Yeah. Tons of Tons of references and links there. Yes, this is clearly a propaganda effort that's being directed. But then it's so easy to go, okay, then we should be for the Chinese Communist Party. Yay! They should be doing whatever they feel like in Xinjiang. Really? Um, it makes everything into an equation. Essentially, it still is playing into this US, NATO, Western, imperial framework in which everything, every person's position in the world is dictated by whether the NATO is supporting them or against them. So if NATO is supporting the Uyghurs, then we have to be against the Uyghurs. So we have to be against Xinjiang independence because NATO is for Xinjiang independence, regardless of our ideology as presumably libertarians or people who care about freedom? Anarchists? No, but we should be for the Chinese Communist Party in Xinjiang because NATO is against the China. What? Uh, hold on. What? No, let's not abandon our principles. And this is something that I've returned to actually recently because uh, I have I have recently begun re-exploring uh, the writings of Orwell and the, their context. And in that context, I was reading uh, Hitchens' take, Why Orwell Matters, recently. And it really, it really hit home with me how deeply unpopular Orwell has traditionally been with the dogmatists on the left and the right. He was clearly of, of the left, broadly speaking. He was a democratic socialist. He talked about socialism, clearly. But he's not embraced by the left because when he was writing in the 30s and 40s and talking about these things, he was also warning and blowing the whistle about the Soviet Union and saying, these are not the good guys. You do not want to support these dictators just because they're against the dictators that you don't like. You can be against all dictators. And he was trying to point that out. And that's what part of what made him so deeply unpopular with everyone, essentially. But he would not bow down and worship Stalin because... Stalin was against the fascists or something along those lines. It's not that kind of calculation that we need to make. We need to have principles and understand why, why we believe what we believe and what, what we're actually on it. And, and I think it goes back to the question then, okay, so what should be my position on Xinjiang? Wait, why am I, what, what is my role in Xinjiang anyway? Why am I trying to insert myself into this in any form? I mean, I get it. Yes, I have my opinions and my my beliefs and I, I can support this or that or that idea. But at the end of the day, shouldn't I be concerned about what I am actually physically affecting in my own space, in my own country of residence, at least, or country of citizenship? Something that I actually have an actual part in? Why? What kind of imperial ambition is it for me to be advocating, okay, US, you should go in there and bomb Xinjiang? or bomb the communists in Xinjiang and free the Uyghurs or whatever. What, what, what is my position in this? And why am I the policeman of the world all of a sudden? So I think we have to step several set steps back and wonder what is, 
Why are we the ones who are taking sides and making decisions for, presumably, independent people who can make their own decisions about what's happening in their own world? Well, and also, you know, it's it's the folks who who are out there pounding the gavel about Xinjiang and the Uyghur issue. I, I want to see I haven't seen the same outrage about Yemen and other issues where, you know, yes. we, yeah. we don't have the same influence. You know. Exactly. Thank you for pointing that out. Look, this is the paradigmatic example I keep going back to because I watched the entire nightmare unfolding was Libya. Libya. Suddenly, we care so much about the Libyans and their oppression under this horrible Gaddafi that we didn't, again, didn't think about at all until the media started to tell us to think about Gaddafi and this horrible, brutal regime, and he's he's given his soldiers Viagra so they can go rape people and all of this total nonsense, utter obvious lies that were discarded as soon as they weren't necessary anymore. And what on earth do you hear about the Libyans now? Absolutely nothing. They never cared about the Libyans. It was a lie that was only used for war propaganda. And anyone who doesn't understand that is just an absolute moron that will never... I don't... Anyone who can see that take place, watch it take place in real time, and still think they are... They're the good guys, and they're on the right side of history, are idiots, and they are being used... If Whenever they jump on one of these bandwagons, suddenly... It's the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, yes. And we'll concentrate on that because we are being told to concentrate on that. But don't think about anything else, Yemen or anywhere else, whatever. Who cares? Again, it's absolute hypocrisy. It's disgusting and it is unfortunately very effective propaganda. Yeah, or remember the Syrian Kurds too? (laughs) Yep, yep. For about a month or two, that was a big issue. Yeah. Yeah, and so... I, another thing I wanted to make sure I asked you about was this concept of the hard kill. And I know that you, you've been talking about that, but you were also talking about the depopulation agenda in, uh, I think it was why big oil conquered the world as you go into that. So do you, it seems like you've kind of turned towards the, like the literal ending of humanity when it comes to this transhumanist agenda. Um, do you see like an apocalyptic world war being a part of that agenda or is it strictly kind of transhumanist? Uh, unfortunately, again, I could see many ways this could play out and it's not, I don't think it's set in stone that it will play out one way or another. Uh, a major nuclear slash whatever kind of war that would eventuate from a hot war could be certainly, it would be the most obvious way to affect a large-scale depopulation in a very short time, and a convenient one for the power structure, because, of course, then they can point to the evil bad guys over there that started it all, because we told you we told you that they started it all. And so they get loved even more by their population, who will rally around the flag, as always happens in wartime. And so it's a it's a obvious and convenient play for power structures. That's why um, it's been done time and time again throughout history. Look at the uh, European wars back when the kings and queens were literally cousins with each other, and they'd write, you know, I need to keep some of these people in line. Let, let's you and me have a... Let's them and them have a war. You know, we'll we'll send our guys to war, and you'll send your guys to war, and we'll we'll battle it out, but whatever. We're, we're still cousins. I mean, that's the kind of example of it. And again, to go back to Orwell in 1984, the bombs are raining down every day, and you hear about these strikes... Are they coming from another government? Are they coming from our own government? I don't know. Whatever. I just know their bombs rain down every now and then. And we're told to fear Big Brother. That's that's all I know. So uh, it's a very convenient mechanism, but it obviously doesn't have to be that. And I think the longer, the sort of the longer term perspective, the broader perspective on this is unfortunately the transhuman perspective, because whatever survives on the other side of even a hot war scenario like that, what will survive, and what form will that take? Well. As I have often consoled myself doing this work, people often ask, how do you look at this kind of stuff for year after year and not get completely you know, depressed about it? I've always consoled myself that no matter what, no matter whether what I'm doing has any effect on anything whatsoever, whether anything anyone can do can derail these kind of tendencies, well, at least we can look back through history. There have always been times of growing and falling tyranny. Tyrants rise, tyrants fall. They get toppled. Eventually, the human spirit absolutely rebels against tyranny at some point, and it always happens, it has always happened throughout history. But it's the human spirit. So what happens when you start changing humanity at a genomic level? Well, 
I don't know, let's start introducing, let's start changing the terminology of these things. So now a vaccine is actually mRNA that we're inserting through these lipid nanoparticles directly into your cells that will start manufacturing proteins. And oh yeah, we're working on virus-sized transistors. We're looking at various ways that we'll be able to um, shove chemicals into your body through these lipid nanoparticles and then send wireless updates to them so that they can start spontaneously manufacturing whatever protein we need in the event of a pandemic, guys. It's a horrible killer virus. So you need this. You'll need this in your arm to participate in human society. That is where all bets are off the table. What does it mean to be human at the point where your, your bio, basic body biochemistry, your building blocks can be manipulated and arranged and, and uh, from, from, from afar at any moment? What does that mean? What does that mean for the future of humanity? I keep, I'm, At this point, I cannot avoid this topic because what else is there worth talking about? As I say, even the event of a hot war and millions of people dying and all of this horror horror that could happen at any moment, at the very least, it's still about humanity and humans will survive. But on the other side of this great convergence nonsense that they're trying to force on the population right now, what will survive? Will it be human at all? Within that, what I try to find is a, a white pill. I guess it's kind of an overused analogy, but um, thank you. <laughs> there are it, it is, <laughs> but um, it, it's easy to say. And my parents specifically, th- this is anecdotal, but my my parents specifically have woken up with the COVID stuff. And my mom has even started listening to you and has started listening to like Tom Woods and other people who speak to kind of her, you know, type of person that she is. And um, have you noticed anything like that? Absolutely, yes. I mean, just directly from my own direct experience, I could say that my audience has probably doubled over the past year, year and a half. Um, and it wasn't particularly small before. So that, I mean, there's a lot of people who are stumbling their way down the rabbit hole right now and more every day. I'm even, I'm continuing. I mean, there was a huge surge, obviously, back last March, April, when the lockdown started happening and people started going, what the hell is happening? Obviously, there was a lot of people getting into it then. But even to today, I just got an email the other day from someone, I started listening to you last December. I don't, I stumbled on your work and now suddenly, oh my God, I can't, you know, I, everything's changed. So it is uh, absolutely happening on a daily basis for people around the world. And that is, uh, honestly, I really do think that is something to be, happy about and hopeful about, because without an understanding of what is happening right now, there's no hope whatsoever. We need a mass consciousness of these problems and to really start addressing them, because I certainly do not think that I have the answers and I'm going to tell everybody how, of course, I don't know how to order the world or how, you know, what, how to stop this mess, but I know that I cannot do it myself. We need millions and millions of people to be looking at these problems. And that's actually precisely my point that I always come back to. Yes, there are the they, them, those, and they are incredibly wealthy and incredibly powerful. And as we have seen over the course of the past year and a half with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and World Health Organization and these other bodies that you might not have ever paid attention to in your entire life, and suddenly they are dictating whether or not you can leave your home. Do you think there are powerful entities in this world that you may not know everything about? Yes, yes, there are. But they get their power from us. They get their power from us. I cannot stress that enough. We are the building blocks of this system that they try to slot into place. That is precisely why they try so hard with their propaganda to get us to go along with their various agendas because they want us to willingly accept it. Yes, Amazon Echo, please come into my home. Oh, now you're part of this sidewalk Wi-Fi sharing grid that will be spying on everyone all the time. Oh, whatever. Uh, They want us to accept it, to welcome it, to purchase it, purchase our own enslavement. And unfortunately, that has been remarkably effective because a lot of idiots, I say this lovingly, but a lot of idiots are very trusting and very, very, very cowardly. They do not want to face the consequences of looking square in the mouth the fact that they are being lied to by incredibly powerful, incredibly wealthy individuals. When you look at that fact, when you stare it square in the face, 
you're going to have to make some very difficult decisions about where you are in your life, what you're doing with your life, what, what you want to support in the future going out from here. Do you want to just continue business as usual and buying the same things you've always bought and interacting in the same ways with the same people that you've always done? Or do you have to make changes in your life? No one wants to hear that they have personal responsibility in this, but they do because the new world order is just us. They are just trying to slot us into a different framework, like chess pieces on the 3D chessboard, I guess. Um, it is our duty to say no. And that's where I think it really comes down to. Um, for example, with something like the Xinjiang propaganda and all of that, what is our place in this? I know that at the point that they are assembling the military forces to go in and attack China because these damn Chi-Coms, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's the point at which we have to be the literal, the, 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 the wrenches in the, not literal, but the, the wrenches in the gears stopping this from happening. No, I will not. I will not support this. I will not send my sons and daughters off to go and die in your stupid wars. I will not support this. I will not support you. I will do whatever it takes to stop that. That is where our responsibility lies. And are we there yet? Uh, this is kind of the nightmare scenario because what we're talking about today with the China, uh, the deeper story about China and what's happening with regard to it. I've been talking about this for at least seven years now when I put out the China and the New World Order podcast. And I've been talking about it because, as I talked about a few years ago in Denmark, echoes of World War One. There are, there are obvious parallels that are happening right now. We are obviously being positioned into some sort of conflict with China as the new boogeyman, Russia as its, you know, brother boogeyman, uh, Iran is floating in that mix. We are being positioned to want to get the, 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 public angered up enough to want war with these different countries. And I'm sitting here saying, no, no, we do not want war. They want war. They are ginning this up. So they'll talk till they're, uh, you know, suddenly it becomes allowable to talk about the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Yeah, because the Chi-Coms, they did this, man. The Chi-Coms did it. Oh, never ever talk about the American funding. Never talk about Fort Detrick and whatever the hell happened there last year that started this wave of illnesses, respiratory viruses in the vicinity of Fort Detrick. No, don't talk about that. No, we're going to talk about Wuhan and the Chi-Coms because it feeds into the propaganda narrative. So I'm sitting here, and unfortunately I have and have been working on a documentary series for a number of years now that people probably don't, understand I am still working on, but the culmination of that series was going to be specifically looking at the way we are being positioned for this war with China and why why it is so important that we don't fall for the propaganda about it. But I may have already missed the boat on that because clearly they are going in on this China propaganda narrative right now and they are getting us to desire war. And that's the worst part of it. Because once again, we are the building blocks of this. We can say no. If we do not participate, they cannot do it. At least until the point at which their entire military is automated, in which case, uh, again, all bets are off the table. But for the time being, they still need us to go along with it. And that's why it's so important to be waking people up. And that's why that is the white pill. More people are waking up now than ever before. The only question is, is it fast enough? And if the answer to that is no, the question is, what are you, not you, but everybody in the audience, what are you doing to help that process along? What are you doing to wake other people up? Yeah, and I mean, it's it's easier than ever to start a podcast or to, you know, not that that's the only answer, but no, I've no, it isn't. And I, yeah, yeah, also, sorry, but let me also stress that. Yes, I'm not saying everybody needs to start a podcast. If you can do it. Yes, 100 percent. Jump in. I trust me. I had zero training or anything when I jumped in and it shows my early podcasts were terrible, but just do it and keep going and you'll never know what will result. But Absolutely, as I want to stress, everybody has a part to play. Whatever you are good at, whatever your role is, whether you're an accountant, a barber, a, a farmer, whatever it is, there is some role for you in this. In the very, very least, at least 
inserting this into your conversations with other people and making sure that they are at least aware that at the very least, you don't have to be pushy about it if you're not a pushy person, but at the very least, let other people know that you know a thing or two about these things. And if they are interested, they can at least come to you for more information. That's a good foundation. And you will be surprised as more people start to clue in, as more and more people are taking that that red pill and going, what on earth is happening? They will start coming to you if they know you're you're the person who's been talking about this. It's, it's an amazing thing. And it's something that I have even underestimated the power in my own life over the past decade and a half, talking about so many of these subjects. And whenever it comes up, I'm like, oh, you know, I did that podcast 12 years ago that was talking about this exact thing. And I have failed to appreciate how important that is to put these things on the record and to say, look, this is exactly what I was pointing to a decade ago. This, this It's happening now. Now you understand how it is happening, why it is happening, that this isn't just a series of coincidences, things just kind of randomly bumping about. No, this is going in a specific way. So you, we can predict certain things that are going to happen. And there is a power to that because, again, when, when you're, you're talking about this stuff, you'll sound crazy to a lot of people, sure bioweapons and, and uh, health, uh, biosecurity state and, and uh, medical martial law sounded absolutely insane when I was talking about it in 2008. Doesn't sound so insane now. Um, so don't be afraid to talk about what you know and what you can back up with facts. That's another important part of this. I don't want people going willy-nilly and spreading all sorts of misinfo and disinfo, but, but, but know your stuff and don't be afraid to share it with others. Yeah, and that's what happened with my parents. You know, I, I started listening to you and I went down that rabbit hole in like 2015 around then. And it took until, you know, the medical martial law to come into effect when when they started looking there, you know. And I, I was going to say, too, is that a, another way to to kind of get involved has been to um, the these freedom cells, what Derek Bros have been has been doing. But also, you know, like. The Mises Caucus has really been grassroots organizing and, and think what you will about, you know, about that whole thing. But at least there's been a lot of grassroots connecting going on. And, and that's been encouraging to see. Uh, 100%. Look, I obviously am not a fan of political processes. But having said that, I am denigrating no one who is out there and actively working towards something that they feel is going to be a solution towards this. I am not here to stop anyone from doing what they're doing. And as you say, even if the direct effect of like the libertarian party is going to take over the world or something, even if yeah. that isn't what we should be aiming for, at the very least, as you say, the connections that people are making in those kinds of political campaigns are themselves useful and could be the for formation of the community that we need to, to go together to, uh, in, into this crisis. Yeah, and and on the local level, at least what I propose and what I've been trying to uh, uh, I don't know put in the minds of people is this processes and everything like that. Uh, but you know, to to get a sheriff in a county or or a town to say I'm not going to enforce mask mandates or I'm not going to enforce this lockdown order or this is a Second Amendment sanctuary area, things like that, or getting people together in in physical or digital spaces, probably physical, but in your town to discuss these issues and to resolve that we are not going to have vaccine passports here. That's just not going to happen. And I, and there's real power in that. Yes. And again, it's a, that's a choice that we have to be actively engaged in. If you are a business owner, there's your part right there. I will not participate in any sort of vaccine program, whatever stupid laws they try to pass. Absolutely not. You ultimately will be that wrench in the gears that will stop this tyranny from coming down. Or you will be a passive part of it, because what can I do? Right. And so we got a couple minutes here left. Um, one thing I wanted to circle back on, though, was uh, this talk of because I, I loved your echoes of World War One speech um, that that got a lot of things turning for me. And I've seen these parallels, too. And there, there's that piece, Falsehood in Wartime by Arthur Ponsonby. That is so oh, when this is what woke me up on the China issue uh, in the last few months is there's there's a certain YouTuber that I watch regularly who was talking about this all the time. And I, I just, I picked up on it because it was constant. It was constant talking about China and China's the devil and, and also genocide atrocities. 
it sounded so much like Ponsonby, so much like uh, the German corpse factories, uh, babies on bayonets, uh, the mutilated nurse, all of these things, uh, the, chi- the Belgian boys with no hands. And, and all of it after the war you know, ends, it's all just crap. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that Germans weren't going around spearing babies on bayonets doesn't make the Germans good. It doesn't mean that, oh, they were good guys and they were doing good things because they weren't spearing babies. But they weren't spearing babies. That was nonsense that was designed to make these into inhuman killers that they're, uh, you know, we obviously, they're baby killers. Let's get them. Um, it's a good way to motivate people into war, obviously. But if you're smart enough to know and identify and see through the propaganda as it is being pushed on you, you can't be tricked like that. So let's be smarter than that. Exactly right. Knowing a little bit about propaganda, war war atrocity propaganda specifically, and how it has functioned time and time again, not just in World War One or in the distant past, but hey, Libya, Syria, other places. How has that atrocity propaganda been used to steer people into war hysteria? Can we head it off by recognizing it when it's happening rather than years later going, oh, maybe they weren't really throwing babies from incubators? Yeah, and the other thing, too, was the role of social pressure that I wanted to to talk to you about, too, is uh, can you tell people a little about that campaign with uh, in, in the U.K.? There were women with posies who or was it posies or some kind of flower? Uh, I want to say white feathers, was it? Uh, you're going to put me on the spot because I don't remember. I don't yeah, remember no. specifically what it was. But yeah, um, the idea was that uh, if uh, uh, if a woman found uh, someone uh, who uh, a, a service age man who wasn't in uniform, they'd have to put these white feathers on 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 they pin them on the man as a sign that this is a coward who isn't contributing to the war effort right um except for that campaign which was a a concerted propaganda campaign that was started by the wife of one of the ministers i want to say um I can't remember. Someone in the British government, it was their wife that essentially started this campaign. Um, But it kind of backfired because a lot of people who were going, working in the munitions factories or whatever that were directly contributing to this war effort, but not on the front lines, were being branded as cowards. You know, why aren't you out there? And they're like, no, 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 no. We need these guys. These guys are kind of helping with the whole war thing. Oh, okay. So that kind of backfired on them. But that's an incredibly important point. The social pressure is... Intense. And when I was speaking on this a few years ago in Denmark, I'm sure this sounded very kind of theoretical. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, I can withstand that kind of pressure. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go along with it. Uh, even now, even in 2021, you're starting to feel it as people are going, China, China, China. And they, it starts to get more and more until it gets to the point of, why are you against China? What's wrong with you? Are you some kind of traitor? And then once that social pressure starts to come full on, a lot of people will bow to it very quickly. Oh, of course. No, I hate the Chinese. Kill them all. Kill them all. That's the way this is done. And we need to counteract that effect or undermine that effect or use that effect ourselves. Um, I do note that one of the uh, anti-Ganda campaigns that has risen up during the uh, COVID crisis is the White Rose White Rose Society or whatever they're calling themselves. I don't know if that's some sort of reference to the White Feather campaign, but at any rate, uh, we need some sort of reverse thing um, to try to use social pressure in the other way. But what does that look like? And how do you do that ethically and all of that kind of thing? Well, anyway, I'll let other people hash that out. But I think we need to be at least aware, as you say, this is an incredibly powerful force that is always brought to bear. If you're not for the war, you're a coward or you're a traitor Maybe you're Chinese. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, again, it sounds ridiculous now, but when we are being prepped for war, it suddenly becomes all too real. Yeah, like everyone wants to think that they'd be that one man in that picture of of the Hitler rally, the one man. Yeah, but they won't. They won't be that man. Exactly right. Who can do that? Who, Who can be the one with their arms crossed when everyone in the crowd around them. It's just a physical human thing. You know that you could be overwhelmed and torn apart piece by piece by this crowd if they catch on to you not going along with the hype. The madness of crowds is a real thing. So it's just a almost a physical thing. Okay, I'll do whatever the crowd's doing. Whatever, yay. Hail Hitler. So it's incredibly difficult to be that one person. 
and and this is what I do, James, in in my small town that's very Republican. Um, when I when I wear my antiwar.com hat, I also wear a Glock T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that message yeah. is with them. Just I get it. Bit. Yeah, because yeah, everyone has their ideas about what these things mean, even if they don't quite know your actual position, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, well, I think that's a great place to end here, James. Do you want to plug anything that you're working on? Uh, I'm working on a bunch of stuff. Um, perhaps most importantly, a podcast on hopium that will hopefully deconstruct some of the hopium phenomena we've seen in recent years, not just the political saviors, but also the anonymous internet message board saviors that are right around the corner any day now, guys. Um, so I will be working on that. But I will, I will just wrap up this, this conversation by once again directing people back to China and the New World Order. My work on China generally, I've got quite a few in the archives that people might not remember or have seen yet that I think are worth reading or, or watching. But China and the New World Order is a pretty good overview. And just as one, one glimpse in that, something that I brought, brought up in that was the eight immortals who were these eight elders of the Chinese Communist Party that rose up after Mao, led by Deng Xiaoping, the capitalist rotors, as they were critiquingly called by Mao, um, who started the market reforms and was, were forming the deals with Rockefeller and all this. Bloomberg, Bloomberg of all places, did a real research deep dive into the families of these eight immortals, as they're known in China, and uh, their connections, and the fact that so many of them attended uh, Harvard, Yale, other kind of U.S. Uh, institutions. They live in the U.S. They're the, they're, they're the CEOs are on the boards of all these different companies and banks. There's a lot of financial connections there. They did the deep dive and did this infographic with all these connections and stuff. And I mentioned that in, in my report when I was talking about this. One thing that I found out later that I didn't know when I was recording that podcast was that, of course, you know, it is really weird. Bloomberg would be reporting on that. But of course, they attempted to continue on with that reporting. They had a team of researchers working on this in Hong Kong, um, spent the better part of a year in 2013 working on follow-up pieces, more reporting, getting into more depth about who these people were, what boards they're sitting on, their connections. And before it could run, it was scrapped because China didn't quite like this reporting from Bloomberg. So they stepped on Bloomberg and then the editor, of course, stepped on the story and said, we can't release this because we're not going to get any access to China anymore. So it, it's, it's, a good, it's a good lesson to learn that, yes, sometimes real reporting actually can take place. It really can take place in the MSM sometimes. Not all MSM people are actively working towards propaganda. But, of course, the editors can always squash it when real journalism threatens to slip through the cracks. So that's a fascinating whole other story. And that's just one example of one tiny thing that I mentioned in that podcast that I could do entire podcasts themselves about. Oh, yeah, yeah. And in, in, now that you mention, I, I made a video on Odyssey called The Anti-MSM Bias. Uh, where, you know, I, I had this realization as I was doing research that basically I had a bias against MSM articles when in time, I think it was the BBC or CNN did an expose on the the Yemen situation. And yeah. it was actually good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And look, I, I denigrate the Russian and Chinese state media, but they do run real reporting on American scandals and things like that, of course. They'll just never report on Russian scandals or Chinese scandals, right? Of course. And vice versa. You can get real reporting on the enemies of the U.S. from U.S. media. And anyway, a lot of what the media does to lie is not necessarily lies by commission. They're not literally printing demonstrable lies. They are omitting key facts or not putting certain dots together or that kind of thing. So there are genuine pieces of information, verifiable, documentable, triangulatable, actual pieces of information you can get from the MSM, but it's what do you do with that data and how do you compile that and what do you, what narrative do you form out of that? But yeah, you're exactly right. We, we shouldn't just dismiss something just because it comes from the MSM. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we were just about to wrap this up, but do you have time for one more topic? <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> okay, was was there any connection that you found with U.S. Uh, US military equipment going to China? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I did a report on that. Um, I will just cite it because I don't have all the details off the top of my head, but it was a, a newsletter okay. I did called China's 
suspiciously American arsenal a closer look. And uh, in that, I have the side-by-sides of all the various laser weapon systems, fifth-generation stealth fighters, drone helicopters, etc., that are essentially, I mean, they're just working from the same blueprint. I wonder how that works. In fact, I even cite um, uh, a, a, a popular mechanics article, of all things, talking about a video of China's CH-4B drone which shows in this Chinese military propaganda video shows information being provided to the drone operator in English, (laughs) which as even popular mechanics puts it, it begs the question whether or not software and other technology originally from the United States and other Western countries is flying on Chinese military aircraft. Yeah, it does make you wonder that, doesn't it? Where are they getting this? (laughs) But yes, absolutely. 100% the Chinese military buildup is coming through Western technology transfers one way or another. I've gestured to that and I've pointed to certain things like the Clinton transfer of nuclear technologies, for example, uh, that I talked about in China in the New World Order, but there's a lot more to explore there, yeah. Okay, awesome. I wanted to leave that little breadcrumb before we we broke here. So thanks so much, James. Uh, anything else? I think that'll do it for this conversation. Okay. Maybe we can follow okay, up in the sounds- future. Sounds good. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, we'll be sure to look forward to the next time. All right.